As we begin this morning, I want, to, I want you to do something. I want you to think of a time in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, a time in your life where you found yourself facing opposition because of your faith. I want you to really think about it. And if you're here this morning and, and you know that you're not a follower of Jesus, my prayer for you is over the next two weeks that as we get back into 1 Peter, you're, you're going to hear why you want to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, and if you're a follower of Jesus and... Uh, Instantly, I can think of a time where I've been opposed for my faith. I work at Youth Unlimited. I'm, I'm with Youth for Christ. I work at the, at the um, warming room, I, I, the, the, the pregnancy center. I, I'm sharing my faith at school. I can think of times where I've faced opposition. That's fantastic. But you might be here and you profess to be a follower of Jesus. And you're having a hard time thinking of the last time that you were opposed, that you felt rejection or ridicule or even persecution because of your faith. And right from the outset of our message, and this is a two-part message I'm going to do this week and next week on the few verses that we're going to look at, I want you to ponder why. Why is that so? Should it be so? And I want to share up front that as I ask myself that question, I can think of so many times in my life of disappointment, where I've had the opportunity and I've walked away from it. But you know, I find so encouraging and motivating for me and challenging and convicting all of those things at the same time is to consider stories of, of Christians that have gone before who have been unwilling to give up their faith, even in the midst of the most intense suffering and trial. And we could list all sorts of examples. Like I think of the Ten Booms, Corey and her, her sister Betsy. Uh, and if you've never read The Hiding Place or seen the movie The Hiding Place, uh, they were Dutch Christians. And during uh, when the Nazis came into the Netherlands, they were hiding Jews in their home and they got caught. And they eventually made it the way, their way to the German concentration camps. And it's horrific, horrific, the events. Miraculous, but horrific, the events that took place uh, in that concentration camp. And yet they held to their faith. I think of Esther Ann Kim. She, she wrote a book called If I Perish. She was a, a Korean Christian, petite little woman, brought up in a home of privilege, but she refused to bow to the Japanese shrine when the Japanese invaded Korea. And as a result, she spent many, many years in prison, starving to death, persecuted constantly for her faith. And there's not, we don't just have to look years and years ago. There's modern day examples too, especially Christians who find themselves in what we call persecuted countries, like North Korea, where, where Christians have to look over their shoulder in fear that someone might be after them. So much of their ministry, so much of their worship is taking place underground. Where do people find that kind of faith? And I share these stories with you because I want to introduce the topic of trials and suffering. Because these people were suffering as a result of their faith. But let's face it. Who likes to suffer? I know I don't. 
In fact, I think it's our human tendency to do whatever we can to rid ourselves of those situations and contexts of suffering. And so we go to great efforts to, to remedy the situation or to, to remove ourselves from a situation, uh, to, to keep ourselves from falling into those situations uh, altogether. Because suffering hurts and it's distasteful to the human nature and it can be painful. And that's why when I asked that question I asked you at the outset, and I answered it for myself, and I thought back to some of my university experiences. That's why when I took first-year ethics course after one class, I quit the class. Because I realized very quickly I was the only Christian in that class. And after having a few people look at me when I raised my hand that I didn't agree with a certain uh, ethical uh, subject, and everyone else was against me, I said, I'm not going to put up with this. I remember at university, I was in leadership at the university, in, within the, uh, inter, inter, I, what do we call it, IV, yeah. CF, yes, IV, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And one of the things we did is we set up a book table in the hallway. I don't think we ever sold a book, but I'm assuming, uh, this is a long time ago, that we set up this book table so that people would stop by and we would talk to them. And it depended who was walking down the hall, how visible I allowed myself to be at the table. Because I didn't want the ridicule and the rejection of some of my friends at school who maybe even knew I was a Christian, but not a real bold one. This morning, we're going to continue in our series uh, from 1 Peter. And we've seen a bunch of times what 1 Peter's about. Peter's writing a letter to a group of Christians who are discouraged, who are sad, they're afraid, uh, they've been persecuted, they've been scattered all across modern-day Turkey because of their faith. Because they're living out their faith, their values, their beliefs, and they were taking a stand against the values and the customs and the behavior of the world around them, they found themselves facing opposition. And we saw way back at the very first message that we, too, live in a world that's becoming increasingly unfriendly towards our faith. If we live out our faith and our values and our beliefs in a world that doesn't agree with our values and our beliefs and our behaviors, we can't help but grate them the wrong way. And we will face opposition. And it led us to ask the question that many believe is the theme of Peter's first letter. And that is this. How can we live out our faith in a world that's increasingly hostile and harsh, even violent, towards those of faith? And not just to endure. Not how do we live out our faith in a way that we just kind of, you know, go tuck ourselves in a corner and not be noticed. But how do we live out our faith in that kind of world that we would leave a lasting impact? How do we survive and thrive in a world that's unfriendly towards our faith? And you would think Peter, as we've introduced this topic of suffering, and he's going to start talking about suffering in the verses that we're going to look at today, in the context of surviving and thriving, you would think that maybe what he's going to do is he's going to teach his readers, here's how you get out of situations of suffering. Here's how you avoid totally trials. 
Here's how you can live your life in a way that you can go unnoticed and undetected. Kind of like an undercover Christian. But those of you who know Peter know that that is not where he's going to be taking us. In fact, Peter's going to have some real radical countercultural things to say to us. He's going to tell us that trials and the suffering and the sorrow and the grief that can result from trials is part and parcel of the Christian life. He's going to show us how God uses trials and and times of suffering to teach us and to grow us and to refine us and to teach others and to reach out to others. But perhaps most radical Perhaps the most countercultural thing that Peter has to say to us is that even in the midst of the most intense suffering, we can have joy. I want to finish the stories of the three set of people that I, ta- I began at the, to tell you about at the beginning. I'm just, I want to just read from, from the accounts uh, on their lives. And, and this is from someone writing about the ten booms. They said, that they, they said that there was true joy in that place. They're talking about prison, concentration camp. And every single night there was a little taste of heaven on earth because they smuggled a Bible in. They had nightly Bible studies. They worshipped. They read the Psalms. They praised God. They walked intimately with Christ throughout that whole experience. Even when Betsy died in the concentration camp, Corey was able to see her as she was dead, laying there. But there was such peace and joy on her face. It was as if she truly had entered into the presence of God and had the fullness of joy. And it was even reflected on her face after she had died. Esther Ann Kim, the, the Korean Christian, Despite the intense suffering, there were many times in Esther Ann Kim's accounting of her experience where she is crying tears of joy because God counted her worthy to suffer for his sake. About Christians in North Korea. American Christians wanted to know how they could pray for the Koreans in North Korea. The Koreans said, we actually pray for you as Americans that you would find what we have found. You have so much, and yet you're not very happy. We are on the run for our lives. We do everything in secret and hiding, but we have such grace of God. The presence of God is with us, and we have found such joy, even in the midst of this hardship. As we continue in First Peter, we are going to see the pastoral heart of Peter. The verses that we've looked at so far, he's been praising God for this great salvation. But but he's going to stop, and he's going to acknowledge the fact that these Christians that he's writing to are in the midst of intense trial. They are suffering. They're experiencing sorrow and grief. And he wants to encourage them. He wants to explain to them how they can have joy, even in the midst of of all of this darkness that's going on around them. What is the secret to joy in suffering? 
What does Peter want to explain to us that would give us reason to rejoice even in the midst of intense trial? For the next two weeks, I want to give you the answers. In fact, the last message we looked at from 1 Peter, Peter already started to begin giving us the answer. But we're going to look at that again. So turn in your Bible, uh, use a pew Bible if you need to, uh, to 1 Peter. And I think there is a slide with uh, the few verses that... uh, We're going to be focusing on this week and next week, but uh, I'm going to touch back on some of the verses that we've already looked at. So I'm going to read from verse 1, and we're going to go from verse 1 to verse 9. So 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3, or sorry, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what I want to do is before we jump into the answers to the the question that we've asked, the secret to joy and suffering. There's a couple of words that are really important for us to note in verse 6. And if you look at verse 6, the first word is right at the very end, if you're in the NIV anyways, and that's that word trials. And the word trials here is a word that is found many times in Scripture. Uh, It can mean trials. uh, It can mean test. uh, It can even mean temptation. And depending on the context, it can have a positive or a negative connotation. So if you remember back when you were in school, and some of you are still in school, uh, when you have a test, you can either pass or you can fail. And so is true of the tests of life. And God sends tests into our life so that what is truly inside of us can be revealed and seen by everyone around us. And an event can be both a test, and a temptation. Meaning this, that God can use an event to test us, to reveal what's going on inside of us, to to grow us, to refine us, but Satan can use that very event to be a temptation, to cause us to sin. So when trouble comes into our life, we can either turn to God, or we can turn away from God. Uh, we can become quiet and thoughtful, or we, we can become bitter and complaining. We can draw to God in prayer and dependency, or we can start to rely on our own strength 
and our own resources. The same event, but completely different results. And the determining factor is how we respond to the event. And so Peter says his readers are experiencing trials of all kinds. The word actually means multicolored. They're experiencing trials of various kinds. And every week we've been in 1 Peter, I think I've said the same phrase to the point that it's, it's, it's etched in my memory that, that these readers have been alienated, they've been persecuted, they've been threatened, they've been scattered, they've been threatened with death, they've actually experienced death. I want to make sure that we really get what's happening to these Christians I want you to imagine that this is you and it's happening within the community that you live in, whether it's Peterborough or one of the surrounding towns. And people look at you like we may look at someone who we know is a member of a cult who's going to come and knock on our door. They don't want your kids playing with their kids. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They don't want you working for them. And they're not going to support your business. Don't be surprised if at night someone comes knocking at your door and threatens you and scares you into running out of your house. Don't be surprised if you lose everything that you have worked for. You lose your investments. Don't be surprised if you all of a sudden experience sickness because you can't even get food. You can't go to the local doctor. And all of a sudden, death comes into the equation. That's what Peter's readers were experiencing. These were the trials that they found themselves in. And understand this. Peter gets that it hurts. They are suffering. They are grieving. They're experiencing sorrow. Peter's premise is this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, boldly living out your faith in a world that's not so friendly to that faith, you will experience suffering. And Peter is not a lone voice in the wilderness on this. In fact, he he joins the voices of many in Scripture. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Paul to Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself said, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. (coughs) Suffering is part part and parcel of being a Christ follower. 
And it leads us to a couple of, to me, a couple of obvious questions that we got to ask. Why? Why does God allow his children to find themselves in times of trial? Maybe even worse, why does God send trials into the lives of his followers? Why does God allow his followers, his children, because of their faith in Jesus, why does he allow them to suffer and to experience grief and to experience sorrow? These are questions we've got to ask. And if you've never pondered it, start pondering it. Why does God allow that? And I want to be fair to Peter. He doesn't give us every answer that we would love to have in this passage about the wise. Because the question I, like, I, I, I ask myself when it comes to the whys is why does God allow situations to happen where we ask why? Because the whys are what drive people away from the faith. You're hearing this if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're going, what in the world these people believe in? Why would they want anything to do with this if this is what can happen? Why? Why does God allow us to ask the whys? Why does God want us to ask the whys? But I want you to know what Peter's going to do is give us a crucial framework for seeing God's hand at work in the midst of our worst situations. The other question I think we've got to ask, and it's important because I've seen a lot of people butcher this text. What kind of trials, what kind of suffering is Peter talking about? Because life brings with it a lot of trials. Uh, you may have went to start your car this morning and it didn't start. That's a trial. It causes grief and sorrow. I experienced a great trial this morning. Allison had gone shopping and I noticed in our cereal cupboard that there was a great selection again. And this morning before I came, I was going to have my choice of cereal and I grabbed out a bowl and I was about to go to the cupboard and Allison said to me, you're not having cereal, are you? I said, oh no, I like to put my toast in a bowl. It's really handy. <laughs> She goes, there's no milk. The sorrow that I went through this morning, having to suffer through toast instead of cereal. I mean, those are trials. Okay, I think you'll probably think of better examples than those two. That cause us to suffer. And, and it's true, we can have joy in the midst of even those kind of trials. And I do believe that the secrets to finding joy in the midst of trials and sufferings works even for those kinds of trials. But the trials that Peter's readers were facing were as a result of their faith. They had the results of salvation in their life. And it rubbed their world wrong. And as a result, they found themselves suffering because of various trials that they had found themselves in. That's the kind of trials that Peter specifically is talking to. And I think it's important that we understand that, A, to be true to the text, but also in, to be relevant to the theme that we have uh, chosen to follow as we look at First Peter, and, and as well to be relevant to our vision, that, that we want to work together to see people outside the church come to faith or come back to faith. And to understand that doing that if we're really, really sincere about doing that, we will face opposition. And we are going to find ourselves in situations that are going to cause some grief and cause some sorrow, and we're going to suffer as a result. 
So you need, we need to really understand what Peter is talking about here. So that's the one word, trials. The second word that's important in verse 6 to understand is the word rejoice, which comes from the root joy. And joy is a really hard word to define. In fact, if you look in the dictionary, and I googled, uh, which is terrible for a person in the printing industry, to uh, Google the definition of joy, because I got about eight dictionary definitions within about two seconds. So much more convenient to go to a bookshelf and pull out a dictionary and, and search it up. But anyways, uh, I pulled up a definition, and almost every definition wants to um, use joy and happiness in the same sentence. That being happy is synonymous with, with being joyful. And yet, if you were a student of Scripture, if you've spent any time in the church, we know that happiness and joy are different. Because happiness is dependent on circumstances. You can be happy one moment and something tragic happens, and all of a sudden you're sad. Joy is much deeper. It's more profound. Joy comes from God. A commentator defined joy uh, by saying that joy is the result of being satisfied with God. That when we're satisfied with God, meaning that we trust in his promises that we've talked about this morning, when, when we are confident that he is faithful and that he is good and that he's got us in his hand, when we have that confidence, when we have that satisfaction, we can have joy in the midst of horrible circumstances. G.K. Chesterton said that joy is the gigantic secret of living the Christian life. The joy is at the center, therefore trials are at the periphery. We can rejoice in suffering. And that's not some sadistic kind of thing. That doesn't mean we go and be really obnoxious and share Jesus with someone so they punch us in the nose. That's, that's not what Peter is saying. He says we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. There's a difference. That we can have triumphant joy knowing that we can face the reality, whether it's good or bad, positive or negative, uh, pretty or ugly, we can face it because we're satisfied with God. And because we're satisfied with God, we can have joy. I want to say something that I said right at the very beginning, because I think there's some of you who are followers of Jesus here, and you're listening to me, and you're going, I don't have a clue what Brent's talking about. What is this trials and, and suffering? Joy in the midst of suffering. I accepted Jesus into my heart and my life is great. I don't ever have anyone saying negative things about me. No one threatens me or makes fun of me. Why? I want you to think about why. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. But just have that question in the back of your mind. And you might ask, isn't verse 6 a contradiction? How can we have joy and sorrow, joy and suffering, rejoicing and experiencing grief in the same sentence? Isn't it a contradiction? How can they go hand in hand? Well, let me give you an example of how they can go hand in hand. I saw Tanya walk out. Matt's here. As we know, Tanya just had a baby. 
And I'm sure she went through much pain and suffering in childbirth. I know some of you ladies are jealous about the eight-minute delivery time, but we won't go there. She suffered through childbirth, carrying that baby, and yet she had great joy knowing what lie in the future, the birth of a child. It's about focus. And as a follower of Jesus, even in the midst of great trial and suffering, we can have joy as we look to the future, as we consider the things that we have, as we've talked about this morning already because of our relationship with God. It's all about focus. And that's what Peter's going to explain to us. What's the secret to joy and suffering? How can we rejoice in the midst of intense trial? It's about focus. Having a satisfied focus. It's knowing the things that we need to focus on. And the last time we were together, we looked at probably the most important focus. What is it that makes you jump up for joy? What makes you do the happy dance? I'm not looking for the, you know, the Sunday school answer. What are the, what are the things? Mel, you're here. I know oxygen makes you do a happy dance. <laughs> but what, what makes some of you others dance? Brad Wagger, I want to know what makes you do the happy dance. Probably finding a deer walking through a trail. <laughs> not my trail, though. But what is it that makes you do the happy dance? What makes you jump up with joy? I can think of some sporting events where we won, and I jumped up with joy. I can remember a few Toronto sporting team events that I watched, and they won, and I jumped up with joy. But you know what Peter says should make us do the happy dance? That should make us jump up with joy? That is focusing and contemplating and pondering this great salvation that we have. And that sounds so churchy. And some of you might go, oh, amen. And we're going to leave here and rush home to watch the Blue Jay game so we can jump up with joy. No, Peter's saying, this is what makes you jump up with joy. Even in the midst of suffering. Because when you grasp and appreciate and begin to appropriate the greatness of our salvation, it gives us encouragement and strength and comfort and motivation and joy, even in the worst situations. But the flip side is true as well. Perfect timing. No. The flip side is true as well. If you fail to grasp the greatness and 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 begin to appreciate and appropriate the greatness of our salvation, it doesn't make you do the happy dance. It doesn't cause you to jump up with joy. Then you're going to find, when life turns sour, that you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be fearful. You're going to feel alone. You're going to be angry. You're going to question your faith. And you will be joyless. And this focus on this greatness of our salvation is what Peter has been talking about so far in his letter to these people. In the first two verses, he he reminds them that nothing to do with them. 
God took the initiative. The triune God worked out their salvation. God chose them. The Holy Spirit drew them and convicted them and showed them of their need of Jesus. And they put their faith in Jesus and Jesus cleansed them through his blood. And then the last time we were together, we saw through verses 3 and 5, Peter continued, breaks into praise as he considers this great salvation that we have. People, you've been given a new birth. These poor people were scattered, most of their identity taken from them. And Peter says, God chose you. He took the initiative. He chased you down. And he's given you a new birth. Because you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're entirely new. You're a new creation. You have a new life, a new joy, a new hope. A new future, a new destiny, a new destiny. And some of our Bible translations say that he's caused you to be born again. And we saw how that means that you have a changed status before God. No longer are you at enmity with him. No longer are you dead in your sins and your trespasses. But it says that because of the love and the grace and the mercy of God, he sent Jesus. And because of grace, we have been saved. They have a new birth. And because of that new birth, they've been brought into a living hope. Their hope doesn't have to be in the futile things of this world. Lauren, I'm going to pick on you a little bit, so forgive me because I didn't tell her. I convinced Lauren, along with the help of a TD Bank person, it would be a great idea to put some of her savings into a mutual fund. About a week later, Donald Trump decided to put a tariff on aluminum and steel, and then now has started to have a little bit of a trade war with a small country like China, And all of a sudden, this very low-risk mutual fund, I said, Lauren, the guy from TD Bank even said, look, the last 20 years, it's never lost. Always gained something. She's saying, Dad, that $2 million, no, the, the money that I put into that mutual fund, I'm losing money. And I realized even something as safe as a very low risk mutual fund, there is no certainty. And that's like the hope of the world. Nothing the hope the world can offer us for us to put our hope in is guaranteed. Because it amounts to nothing anyways. But Peter says, God, because of your new birth, has brought you into a living hope. A clear view of the future of what God has in store for them. Boy, that was great news for these Christians who are running scared because they're being persecuted because of their faith. To know that they have an eternity in heaven with God, regardless of what happens here on earth. And how could they know that this, this was certain? This living hope was not as futile as the hope that the world has to offer. Well, we, Ben's talked about it. We looked at it last Sunday. It was guaranteed. Their new birth was a result of the death of Jesus. And it was validated when God raised Jesus from the dead. This is a living hope. Guaranteed by nothing less than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they have new birth. We have new birth. We've been brought into a living hope. We've been brought into an inheritance that can't perish, fade, or spoil, which is great news for these people because they, in many cases, had lost everything. But they had an inheritance that neither circumstances nor time could touch. They could be assured that they would experience the future fulfillment of their salvation. That they would receive all that we as believers in Jesus Christ receive. All the blessings. Joint heirs with Christ. 
That one day that they would spend eternity in heaven with God, enjoying his fellowship. That was their inheritance, and nothing could touch it. Nothing could spoil it. And not only had they been given a new birth, not only have we been brought into a living hope for followers of Jesus, not only do we have an inheritance that neither time nor circumstances can touch, but Peter says, you're divinely protected. That's what the ten booms understood. Betsy Ten Boom said to Corey before, her di- before she died, there's no pit so deep that God isn't deeper. They understood that they hadn't been lost in the process. They knew that their lives were in the hand of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-good God. And he was in control. And no matter what happened to them on this earth, even death itself, nothing could snatch them from the hand of God. How how can we have joy in the midst of suffering and trials? By focusing on the greatness of our salvation. We have been given new birth. We have been brought into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never fade or perish or spoil. And we are protected by none other than God. God, help us to understand the greatness of our salvation. And God, forgive us and me for our times of apathy and our failure to ponder and our failure to contemplate that which should bring us so much joy. Amen? Amen. Mike, let's sing.